It's Thursday, June 23rd, 2016, and you're listening to episode 405 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 53 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. This is Brodor. And this is Chris. All right, we tried recording this once before and stumbled all over it, so this time I'm just going to push straight at it as Broder suggested like cellmate <laughs> which is one of the things that has been true in our lives for longer than we've been doing fear the boot and we have alluded to it on the show but we have never dealt with it directly as a topic and this is something that I have been wanting to do more and more as the years go on is I want to talk about mental health and gaming there's might be a follow-up episode to this one where I bring on some people to talk about the possible mental health benefits of gaming. But let me stress that that is not what we're talking about in the course of this episode. We just want to talk about what it is like to be people that have mental health issues while we are gaming and what it is like for the groups that are gaming with us. Yeah, And just to be clear, these are all our stories and none of us are mental health professionals. Yes, the legal disclaimer there, we are not mental health professionals. We are not dispensing medical advice. If you have a mental health issue or even concern, you might have one. I strongly suggest that you seek out a therapist, a psychiatrist, a religious leader, even just a trusted friend or family member, talk about it. We are not trying to dispense mental health advice. We are simply relating the anecdotes of what has happened in our life and what has and has not worked for us. So just get that legal disclaimer out of the way that if you thought Fear the Boot was the same as seeing a doctor, that's a good sign you have a mental health issue. <laughs> Actually, I want, I want to ask you a question related to what you just said. Sure. Why? What is the what is the motivation behind doing what we're about to do? I think it's two things. And that's a great question, Chris. Those don't come from you too often. So I want to thank you for that. Yeah, blind squirrel finds a nut every now and again. Yeah, exactly. Stop clock and all that stuff. But yeah, I think there's two reasons. One is the fact that when we have mentioned in passing on the shows before that we have various struggles. We've gotten a fair amount of feedback from people who feel isolated, who feel like they're the only ones struggling with this, and are glad to hear that there are people out there that have these same kinds of struggles. And the second reason that this is really kind of heavily on my mind is because this has heavily impacted my gaming lately. Over the past several years in particular, this has really had a major impact on who I game with and how often I game. And I don't want to throw people under the bus, but I think there are some stories there that need to be talked about. So I think those are my two goals here. One is to give some reassurance and some lay-level personal advice to the people that are struggling with these kinds of issues and just help you guys understand you're not alone with this. And the second is to maybe give some kind of tips and personal anecdotes to people who are in a group with someone who might be struggling with these issues. Yeah. So from my perspective, to answer your question, Chris, I knew that other people struggled with some of the same things I do. But for me, until I met Dan and started having some of these conversations, I had never actually met anybody that struggled with it. I kept it all very hidden. And in the past four or five years or so, I've become a lot more open to talking about it and found out how many people in my life struggle from some of the same things. Yeah. And it is very helpful to have somebody to talk to and just being more open with coming out and saying, here's what I'm struggling with. People are more willing to share what they're struggling with back. And I found that very helpful, not just for me, but because I deal with it and I find myself to be doing well professionally and in other aspects of my life. Some people that I've talked to have seen that as a sign of hope. So I can get this under control. Yeah. And certainly that's a shift that we've seen in society over the past couple of decades is if you go back to when our parents were our age, you simply did not talk about having a mental health issue. You know, that is very stigmatized. That just made you one of those crazy people. I think even today, while things have gotten much, much better than they were, that is still the case. I have had some things said to me in the workplace or in my private life where people have looked at me and basically written me off as, well, you're one of those crazy people. 
I had a boss tell me, and I won't name the place, but I had a boss at a job tell me that he felt the reason he was having trouble with several of his direct reports was not because of any problem he had, but because they all had minor mental health issues that required some form of treatment. And he said this to my face, and I could have probably brought him up on a lawsuit on that. But the point being that we live in a time when these things are getting destigmatized and they're starting to get talked about, but we're not there yet. And so I think there is a value in us just being another bucket of water in the ocean of that attempt to destigmatize it, to get people to understand that you're not alone with this. I took quite a bit of psychology classes. I had a really weird college life because my original major was actually biology because I was shooting for a job in marine biology. And I went from that to English before dropping out working in computers. But along the way, when I wasn't taking biology and English courses, I was killing off a lot of my electives and psychology classes. And so I took a ton of psychology classes. And one of the theories that was put out within the course of these classes is that in one way or another, everyone alive at some point in their life will have some degree of a neurosis. Now, to separate the term for anyone who's not familiar with it, a neurosis is generally defined as a psychological problem that does not interfere with your basic ability to function in the world. And when it actually starts to damage your understanding of reality to the point that you can no longer or interpret reality in anything approaching truth, then it becomes a psychosis. So psychoses, like schizophrenia and such, are a very small problem in terms of percentage of population. Now, for those individuals, obviously, they're immense problems. But speaking as a percentage, they're very small. Neuroses, on the other hand, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, these start to describe a much larger portion of society The best estimates that I have seen say that everyone at some point in their life will struggle with a period of one or more neuroses, and they estimate that about one-third of the adult population has them chronically to the point that it requires some kind of medical intervention. So for me, Chris, it was to see if I could be serious for an entire episode. So far off to a bad start. But it's just funny. My, my psychiatrist told me um, when I first started seeing her that the number one reason people go to their general practitioner is back pain. And the number two reason is depression. That is something that I have found to be surprisingly true is when I first realized that I had the problems I do. And in a second here, we'll talk about our history with these issues. But when I first started realizing I had the problems that I do, I chose to go directly to, at first, a psychologist. For anyone who's not familiar with the difference, a psychologist is someone who's simply going to talk to you. They're going to do talk therapy and recommend ways of trying to change how you live. In particular, they are incapable of writing a prescription. Generally speaking, that varies from state to state, but generally speaking, that is absolutely correct. A psychiatrist, on the other hand, at least once again, depending on the state and within the context of the American medical system, they are an actual medical doctor who may or may not do talk therapy, but their primary role is to prescribe medications that are designed to affect your mood or the way that you think or things like that. And we'll talk about some of these controversies surrounding whether to medicate or not here in a little bit. But how this relates to gaming is, first of all, a lot of people, especially from our generation and older, that are in the gaming hobby had a lot of drama and trauma in their past. And so it seems that within the gaming community, there is a larger representation of people that have some form of mental or emotional disorder than the population as a whole. Now, even within the younger generations where things like gaming are more socially acceptable and you may not be dealing with people that have all this trauma and social outcasting, you're still talking about a significant number of people who are bringing this baggage into their lives and into their games. And oftentimes they don't know how to handle this in their lives. And the people around them who might be good friends, family members, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, that want to support them simply don't know what to do. And once again, we cannot exhaustively answer those questions in the course of one podcast, but 
these are all things that I think having these issues, I think we would be doing a disservice to our audience not to talk about how they relate to gaming because these are a big issue within the gaming community. Right, right. For me, the two things are intertwined, right? And I think it's probably true for most of us in that so much of my identity is shrouded in the hobby, but so much of my identity is also shrouded in this anxiety, depression, sure. OCD, whatever, that when I sit down at the gaming table, they're both there, right? Right. You know? I've always wondered if it is a case of there is a higher percentage or if it's just that the people that are gaming are more willing to talk about it and be open about it. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that I've met more people in gaming that have, you know, struggles that, than elsewhere. You know, Wayne, that is a fair point. I don't have any hard research in front of me that describes mental health within the gaming community could look up hard research on the population as a whole, both in tabletop role-playing statistics of any kind are hard to come by. But that is an interesting question of, is it more likely that people that are in gaming have that kind of trauma or is it simply that we're more in tune with ourselves? I mean, we play a hobby that focuses on the exploration of character and the exploration of self. And on top of that, people that are in gaming tend to be a bit more, and I don't necessarily mean this politically, but they tend to be a bit more progressive in their thinking, a bit more accepting in their attitudes. And so I wonder if, like you said, that is some part of it, that maybe it's actually not more represented. It's just more openly discussed. And I don't have an answer to that. I would put forth that it may have something to do with there is, you know, a perceptible level of acceptance when it comes to gaming within the community itself and the fact that we all know that we all do this geeky pursuit of which a lot of us won't admit to the outside world. And that breeds a sense of comfortableness and familiarity and in a certain sense safety to where I think that issues like that um, and struggles like that might be a little bit easier to bring up because of that level of of comfort and that you're with people that you already are in a certain sense sharing a secret with so it makes it it opens up the door to make it a little bit easier to share other things that you might not necessarily tell other people see for me i've always linked it to imagination right I've always linked it to creativity so that in in my hobbies, I want to be creative. I want to I want to play games. I want to tell stories. I want to escape and I want to live in these other worlds. Right. But in my everyday life, I'm still imagining. I'm still creating. I'm still going through these thought exercises that ultimately become these thought spirals that lead ever downward. Right. But I'm always imagining. I'm always thinking. I'm always creating in my head. And so for me, I, I find that gaming is this great outlet for a mind that is normally racing can focus on something truly escapist and positive. Yeah, and that's one I don't know that I want to dig into too deeply. But I think you are onto something, at least in saying that creative individuals and mental health issues like depression and anxiety, I have seen studies that link those two that say that there is an unusually large representation of people with some form of an emotional disorder in their creative community. Now, why is that the case? What's the relationship there, if any? But that is a statistically significant truth. So does that also carry out to gaming? Because we have minds that like to consider possibilities, does that lead us to be more depressed or anxious? Or is the fact that we're more depressed or anxious what leads us to look for other realities? For And I don't want to get too far into this because it can start to get caught off on the side tangent sure. of escapism and mm -hmm. no black leaf and whatever, which I don't want to get caught up on. But let me tell you guys a little bit about my personal story with this and some of the things I've been through. And I'm going to tie this into broader suggestions about gaming, but I also want to give Wayne and Brodor an opportunity to talk about themselves as well here. If for no other reason than the fact that I want you guys at home, if you have this to understand you're not alone, and if you don't have it to understand that there are very, very likely people in your life that do who may or may not be talking about it or to equip you if, God forbid, someday something happens that starts to put you on that road. So Chris, however, he is here as someone who does not suffer from any condition, at least mental, that requires treatment. As chlamydia is another <laughs> is another issue. Can I get a big round of applause as yeah. in claps? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's not the clap so much as applause. But, <laughs> but 
where I got my start with this is growing up, I dealt with a lot of abuse. And there are some stories that I won't tell until, to be honest, certain people are dead and gone. And I know they say it's fairly common for people that have been abused to want to protect their abusers. And maybe that's exactly what's going on. But I have my own reasons I don't care to get into. I'm just going to leave it at that. But growing up, there was a lot of abuse that I dealt with both at home and not at home, at school, et cetera, et cetera, that left me in a very, very self-loathing, depressed state. And that depression stayed with me through a lot of my childhood, well into my adolescence, up to a point where I did attempt suicide at one point when I was in my teens. And what stopped me is a long story that maybe I'll tell some other time, I don't feel prepared to tell it right now. But the point being, that's where I was at. Now, once I moved out on my own and I got out of school and I got away from the sources of my depression, the depression largely went away. Now, I still have bouts of it. But what that led into instead, or the new condition that I developed, was I started to develop an anxiety disorder. Because when there's this much wrong in your life, your brain starts to learn two truths. One is that something is always wrong. If you think something's not wrong, it's only because you don't know what it is. And so you live with this constant sense of fear and trepidation. And two, that if something is wrong, it's worse than it really is. So on a scale of a one to a 10, if you have a problem that's a two or a three, like you're going to be a little bit late to work and somebody's going to say something about it, but that's all that's going to happen. It becomes a nine. It becomes a 10. It consumes you. And that's the two things that it programs your brain to do. And I knew I had that sort of obsessive thinking, but I didn't realize how bad it had gotten until I was at a Dave and Buster's. And in the course of doing a competitive and somewhat physical game, it was this horse riding simulator. I had my first full-blown panic attack. And as with a lot of people that have their first panic attacks, the people on the other end of 911, all they hear is chest pain, difficulty breathing. They sent out an ambulance. I get taken in. You know, they presume I'm having a heart attack. And they spent months and months and months testing me for heart problems. I had echocardiograms. I had to wear a halter monitor. I went to the Washington University Center for Advanced Medicine for genetic screening for cardiac conditions all this stuff before finally I stumbled across a web page doing my own research that said how to tell the difference between a panic attack and a heart attack. And I suddenly realized like, wait a minute, I'm on the panic attack side of this column in every differentiator. And it was at that point that I started to look up, well, what is panic disorder? What is anxiety disorder? And instantly panic disorder and anxiety disorder are two separate conditions. They're related conditions, but they're not the same. And realized that's what I had and realized that I had two choices. Either I could live my life in the clutches of this condition, and it did have me in its clutches because I had reached a point where the anxiety, the panic attacks, and the fear of the panic attacks, which plays back into the anxiety, had me so locked up that I would pull up at my apartment. Now, mind you, I lived on the first floor door closest to the parking lot and would typically park right in front of my door. The walk from my car to that door was no more than perhaps about 25 feet. And it would take me a while to work up the courage to simply walk that distance. If there was a flight of stairs, I was afraid to walk up that flight of stairs. Things like running and exercise completely out of the question. And I realized that I have a choice. I can either seek help or I can basically live crushed by this disorder. And people who have depression or any number of other conditions have the exact same issues. They can't get out of bed. They can't function. They're thinking about harming themselves. And let me stop right here and say to those of you that don't have the condition, it's okay to not understand. And I'm going to talk to you guys in a little bit about what I think you can do to help. It's okay to not understand. But for heaven's sake, please don't pretend you do. Because the fear and the sadness and the things that you feel are occurring within a proper context of life. Somebody dies, so you're sad. Maybe you even have a bad day where you just wake up in a funk, but by the time you go to bed that night, it's past. These are not rational perceptions of the world, nor are they the same as the ones that you feel. And I know this because I did not have my first panic attack until I was in my 20s. 
I know what fear was like in a quote unquote healthy mind. And I know what fear is like in a mind addled by a panic disorder. They are not the same. And so telling somebody these nice sort of Socratic truths like, well, you're not in any danger. You know, you don't have any family history of heart disease. Your life isn't that bad. You have people that love you. Now, look, these are reassuring things, and I'm not saying you shouldn't say them. But the what I am thing saying you can say to somebody with a you know, panic disorder is the only thing to fear is fear itself. Well, or any disorder. The worst thing that you can say is, I don't understand it, and therefore it's invalid. You know, why don't you just get over it? You just need to toughen up and develop the willpower to get out of bed and function normally. And then I hear these people who, and this is one that really makes me mad, who look at people who are getting treatment, whether that's talk therapy or whether that's medication. And don't get me wrong, I understand the case for not running to psych meds for every problem in the world. I get that. There can come a point where the medication or its side effects is the problem, and I am not medically qualified to tell you where that line is, but I do know that is the thing. But if someone is getting treatment, this is not someone who is weak. This is someone who has done a very strong and brave thing because they have stepped out and said, I am not going to let this control me, and I'm going to be humble enough to admit I can't fight it alone, but to hell if I'm not going to fight it. One of the things I've really struggled with over the years that other people would say would be, well, I've gone through this, whatever that may be, and it didn't impact me like this. Because already, that's something that I struggle with. Sure. I look at my history and compare it to some other people's history, like, say, Brodor's. And yeah, it, buckle up, kids. It's going to get ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't compare. So yeah. I always feel like, and it's, it is strange to say it this way, I never feel like I deserve the issues I have. Because I haven't gone through enough to develop the issues I have. Well, and that's something that I know I always struggle with. So when other people say things like that, it really makes you second guess yourself. Sure. This relates, though, to kind of one of my first intentionally stupid questions in, in regards to that. Dan, you're a smart guy. You have proven time and again that you're just your level of intelligence and analytical thinking is, is very, you know, very high. Um, but that doesn't necessarily exclude anybody else from the nature of this question. As this was developing within you, you have a very strong sense of, of what's rational and what's not. And here's the intentionally stupid part of this, of this question, though. How did all of that overpower that rationality? How did it get past that where you couldn't essentially convince yourself that everything's just fine and whatever is happening within me is incorrect based upon the circumstances that I'm in? You understand the question that I'm asking? Yes. I do, and I think that's a fantastic question. And one of the things that they advise for people that have anxiety disorders is when you're not in the middle of a panic attack, and they recommend this for people who have depression, all kinds of other conditions, is to sit down and try and rehearse healthier thoughts. So they become more natural so that when it, the depression or anxiety or whatever does hit, your mind is already on the path of feeling a little more natural with them. But Chris, to answer your question, I think the way you have to look at it is that the mind is the interpreter. It is the seat of all that you experience. And when the mind cannot interpret reality correctly, it's like looking through a heavily scratched lens. You will never see the world for the way it really is. And you can sit there in the middle of a severe attack of depression, for example, and you can know analytically that these people love me, and if I was to die right now, a huge number of people would be at my funeral, and blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't necessarily stop you from saying, I'm still worthless and ought to die anyway. That thought becomes very powerful to the point that all the other facts, and I will say they are facts, don't feel real. Because it's like looking through the scratched lens of a camera. You will never see the world for how it really is. And it's the same way that I can look at my family history. My family has no history of heart disease. I've had regular blood tests done with my general practitioner. My cholesterol levels are great. My blood pressure is a little high from stress, but it's medicated and under control. I've had every heart exam you can think of just about. And all of them have come back wonderfully. Yet in the middle of a panic attack, none of those facts will overwhelm 
just the sheer emotion of what you're feeling at the moment. And I mean, if it was rational, it wouldn't be called a disorder. If you're in a situation that's genuinely dangerous or genuinely depressing, you know, a close loved one just died, you're in a prison camp. I mean, I don't know what the situation is. You're walking down a dangerous street at night and you feel afraid or you feel depressed. That's not a disorder. That's a rational response to what's going on around you. You don't need medical treatment for that. Now, it might be helpful to talk to somebody. It might be helpful to have some way of learning how to cope with that situation. That's not a psychiatric disorder because it's a rational response. And so it's the very nature. It's kind of the same way. If you have a disease and your immune system spikes, that's not an immune disorder. That's what the immune system's supposed to do. Now, if you're sitting there any day of the week and your immune system spiking, you have an immune disorder. And the same thing I think I would say is true of the mind, that if, if what you're seeing makes sense, then it's not a disorder to begin with. It's the very nature of the thing that it doesn't make sense. Well, the other thing here is, Chris, do you know what a panic attack is? The short answer would be no. Uh, th- there is a longer answer involved here, but 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 go ahead. Okay, so... Besides the mental things that are happening, those are a big part of it. I think the important thing to understand about a panic attack is what's physiologically going on with the body. Your body is going into fight or flight instinct. It's the same instinct where if you would run into a bear in the woods, your body knows that it needs to either fight this bear or run. For either instance, adrenaline starts running. Your body starts reacting in ways to prepare you for that fight or that flight. In the case of a panic attack, your body's going through the same thing. Your heart starts beating faster. You start to feel it in your chest. You start to feel hot. All of this starts happening. Your senses become sharpened. Time, everything seems magnified. But there's nothing physically to focus on because the danger is in your head. So physiologically, you're having all of these actual things happen in your body to prepare you for this thing that isn't actually there. And then you're dealing with the mental aspect of something has triggered this in your thought process. You probably, if you've never had them before, you would have no idea what it is. But something is going on in your head and you may not know what that is to focus on to try to stop it. So you just have to weather it out. Or drug it off. Yeah. To be honest. So Broder and Wayne, I'd love to hear from you guys on what it is you struggle with and maybe a high level history of it. Oh, there is one other thing I want to throw in, though, because someone asked me to talk about this, which is while this one I got past, I did have a couple years where I also needed treatment for PTSD because of abuse. And once again, this is another story I'm not sure I'm prepared to tell that I suffered in my adult life, actually in the time that I was doing this show. And there's a point in the show where it kind of affected the quality of the show to make a very long story and very complicated story. Very short is I basically faced an abuse at the hands of an associate that bled over into a legal issue. And it really screwed me up. I was having recurring nightmares, all the things that you associate with PTSD. And while I certainly do not minimize the PTSD that people who are combat veterans suffer. I don't minimize that in the least, nor do I minimize the suffering that people who are survivors of sexual assault suffer. I don't minimize that in the least. It is not restricted to such groups. You have anything massively traumatic happen in your life that you are unable or unequipped to process, and it can leave you like that. And I had to get help, and it took several years. I did fortunately finally get past it, but it did heavily change my life for a couple of years before I started to get that one under control and to work past those issues, which once is maybe a story I'll tell another time. It's it's far too long, complex for the course of this episode. But Brodor, I think the source of your issues is probably pretty well known to. Yeah. So if you listen to the episode that my brother was on, I couldn't tell you the title or the number, but uh, if you listen to that episode that my brother was on, we, we talked a lot about our childhood and about the abuse that we physical abuse and emotional abuse that we received at the hands of our mother. And I was 24. My wife and I had just gotten our first apartment and I started hearing voices at night while I was going to bed. Now, my mother used to come into my room and my brother's room, you know, when she'd get home from, you know, one of her many jobs or whorings or whatever drug induced stupor she was in. And she'd drag us out of bed and kick the shit out of us for whatever reason. Right. 
So anyway, I started hearing this woman's voice at night and, you know, I had had some depression issues up to that point in my life pretty minorly, although my wife would argue more so than minorly. We've been together since we were kids, but any which way. And I didn't know how to deal with it. So my wife finally convinced me that I should see a psychiatrist and talk about it because this is obviously not normal. And I saw this guy. I couldn't tell you his name. I saw him for about 45 minutes and he just rubber stamped me with schizophrenia. And he said, hey, here you go. Here's your antipsychotics. Have a great day. So I started taking these antipsychotics. I took them for two days. I called the doctor's office back and I was so miserable and so zombified and just out of it. I told him, look, I'm going to quit taking these things. I'll just be crazy. There is no way I can live like this. So my wife being the angel that she is, she put up with it for a bit and persuaded me that I should go see a different doctor. So I had different doctors like, look, you know, he didn't admonish the other doctor's office. He's like, but I'm familiar with the practice is what he says. And, you know, they've got a lot of patients coming through and, you know, you may have been misdiagnosed, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he said, look, you're not schizophrenic. You have post-traumatic stress disorder. Everything that you dealt with as a child, it screwed you up. And now it's manifesting in this fashion as an adult. He's like, so you don't need these medications that you're on. You know, you need some other assistance, mostly going to be, you know, talk therapy and to deal with your obsessive compulsive disorder, which he had diagnosed me with. And so I dealt with that for a while. And I got to tell you, it went pretty well for a long time until a couple years ago, things just got really bad for me. Um, And I don't suffer from an anxiety disorder like you guys do. I'm pretty OCD about some security issues specifically. And that's all going to stem from I never had a safe space, right? I was never, and I don't want to sound like, oh, this is a safe space kind of person, but I never had a safe place, right? Because the person that, you know, God created, right? That created you, that gave you life, that was supposed to protect and defend you at every turn is the source of your trauma and terror, right? I had no place to hide. And so I'm like, I had the exact same thing. I faced it at home. I faced it at school. There was no place in my life where I felt safe. Right. It screws you up. And so I'm really weird about locking doors and double checking doors and making sure that everything is safe. I mean, you would not believe the paranoid security that I have on my bedroom door at night just because it's the only way I can sleep. But for me, you use the word earlier, crushing, and that that's what I go through, right? There are some days where I am just crushed. There's no reason. There's no trigger. There's no explanation. There are days where it is, I mean, it is a fight to get out of bed and get dressed and go to work and not kill myself. Broder, you mentioned another word too, spiral. Right. You get in these obsessive thought loops, right? And it just keeps getting darker and down and down and down. PTSD a little bit, as I understand it. If you want to think of the brain in regard to PTSD, think of it like a conveyor belt. An experience enters on one side of the conveyor belt. Let's say you go to work and you get yelled at for being late. Now, in the normal person, in the normal series of circumstances, what happens is that sets an emotional state. You're, you're agitated, you're depressed, you're angry, whatever it is you're going to feel. But what happens over time is as you get more distance, your brain processes it. It kind of takes it apart, tears it down, and eventually it's packaged off into a memory and it gets put off in some corner of your life and eventually just dissipates into the sands of time. It just becomes a memory like any other. So it's just this conveyor belt going from left to right. A memory enters, and eventually it becomes a distant memory, and uh, you forget it, you know, or all but forget it at some point. But what happens with PTSD is there is something in your life that stops you from processing that. Now, in the case of a combat veteran, it could be you're literally in the trench. You're not allowed to feel fear because you're still getting shot at. This is a part of your life. In the case of family trauma, you may not be able to escape the family situation. And so what happens is that package basically gets jammed on that conveyor belt and it's stuck and you can never quite get out of that moment of your life. And that's the struggle is to try and get that moving again after years and years and years of being log jammed and piled up and stuck. 
you know, you're just forever in that moment of time on some level, some part of you never leaves that. Right, you can't escape it. Yeah, right? it, it's, I don't remember who it was that said this, I don't, uh, but there was an author, might have been Hemingway or somebody, who said he had the look of a man who went out to sea and never came back. And it's that kind of thing, you know, it's that sort of experience. Right. Wayne, do you want to? Yeah, so... Like you, Dan, I won't go into some of the details of mine because they're not my secrets to tell. And I've always been kind of an open book on here. I've told a lot of stories, but there are a few things I won't get into. I think I kind of know what my initial triggers were. But when I think back, the first time I remember hating myself, I was nine years old and I was having the thoughts of there's no point to me. There's no I'm not good at anything. Nobody likes me. And I took a plastic knife to my wrist and tried to cut my wrist with a plastic knife. Looking back on it, thankfully, it was a plastic knife and not a real one. It didn't do anything other than scratch me up. But that's as far back as I remember hating myself. My depression has been something that's been with me for at least that long. And it was something I just kind of, I don't want to say you get used to it because you don't get used to it. But it's a part of my life. and It's always been sure. a part of me. So it was something that I thought I could always deal with. So I never really saw anyone for depression. I was forced to go to a psychiatrist one time. I told the guy I thought him and his entire profession were quacks, and I refused <laughs> to go back. So that was my initial experience going through up until my 20s. Because like you, Dan, I didn't have the... I look back and I do see the anxiety developed before my 20s. Yes. I see the signs of uh, it. Same here. Looking back, I can see the obsessive thinking. I can see yep. the constant fear, but it didn't blow up until I was about 23. Exactly. And so when it blew up for me was my first panic attack. And the first one was, so it caught me completely out of nowhere. I had no idea what it was, what I was going through, any of that. And I did some research after that, kind of figured out what had happened. And I had this whole mindset of, Anything that I would take that would adjust my mind would change who I am. I didn't want to take medication. I also had a distrust of medication because a couple of bad prescriptions nearly killed my mom a few years before that. So I didn't even do Tylenol or anything. I, there was a long period where I wouldn't touch a medication of any kind, let alone one that would change your mind. I didn't drink for the same reason. Right. I didn't want anything affecting my brain chemistry. See, I, I drink for exactly that reason. I mean, I am a classic self-medicator. So it continued. I had a couple more panic attacks, and then I would have never done anything to help myself. What got me was Sarah, you know, my wife, walked in and saw me curled up into the couch in the fetal position in the middle of a panic attack, and I saw what it did to her. That's what I needed to reach out for help. So at that point, I started looking around. It's like, I don't want to just go get medicated. So I found a psych, you know, a psychologist specifically because I knew in Missouri he couldn't write a prescription. So I go, I talk to him, I get my diagnosis, you know, uh, severe depression, uh, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and he recommends a general practitioner for me because I don't have one at the time. And he talks me into going and seeing him about a medication. And so I break down and do this. And for me, that time, it's one of the things I needed. I worked with that psychologist for a year or two years. The medication gave me what I needed to be able to basically lower everything down to the point where I could start using techniques he was teaching me. Yeah. He, I, I had the same issue where I was very, very reticent to take any form of medication for a wide variety of reasons. I saw it as weakness. I didn't, I didn't know what they would do to me. I didn't know how they would change me. Yep. But the anxiety, it was he's on the medication. Yeah, it does. And it was not until I started taking at least a low dose of medication that I even got enough distance from the problem to be able to look at it, to be able to see it for what it was and to start really trying to respond to it in a rational way. And so that's what I did that time. I got through. I learned a lot of tricks that really have helped me to stop panic attacks. And then I went off the medication. I left the psychologist. The depression was still there, never touched. I never even, I tried to deal with it because it's always been here. So I thought, okay, I'm back to normal for me. And a couple of years later, the, the anxiety got worse again. The panic attacks came back and I had to go 
back onto medication. And it's something I really struggled with because I was proud that I was able to get off of it. Right. Well, that's a mistake a lot of people make is they take the medication, they start feeling better, and then they say, well, I'm feeling better. I must not need the medication. And they quit taking it without ever making the connection. You are feeling better because of the medication. It's extremely common. Yeah. Yeah. I'm coming to realize that the depression is a bigger problem than I ever acknowledged. Right. And I just didn't acknowledge it because, like I said, I've been feeling that way since I was at least nine. Yeah. That is the norm for me. And it's only recently, in the past couple months even, sure, that I've made that decision that I don't want to hate myself anymore. Yeah. And for me, I had that realization, I mean, well over a decade back, that this wasn't normal. But I can still look at situations like I'm pushing 40 years old. I'm 39 years old. We'll be 40 in a few months. And... You know, I have been away from the primary sources of my anxiety now for, I mean, well on 20 years. And yet even pushing 40, I'm in my own house, apart from my wife, Carla, I don't live with anybody. I have no roommates. I have a couple dogs that are really freaking loud and obnoxious, but they're all well behaved. None of them are aggressive or anything like that. And yet there are still times where I will only feel safe going into the master bedroom, closing the master bedroom door, then going into the master bathroom, closing and locking that door and sitting in that small of a space. And that's the only place left where I feel safe. And I've heard a lot of people say to me, I, you know, I never would have guessed you have this anxiety disorder because I see you at Fear the Con. I see you at Gen Con. I hear you on the show. What you guys don't realize is one, how difficult it is, quite frankly, to fake it that well. And secondly, To be blunt, there's at least a one in three, if not a one in two chance that when you're talking to me, I very well may be drugged anyway. And that's just the reality of it. Now, a book that I want to suggest, this helped me a lot, is if you're at the point where you don't want to see a psychologist, you don't want to see a psychiatrist, you think there's no one in your life you can talk to, good heavens, at least seek out a book. I mean, do something for heaven's sake, but a book that really helped me a lot. And it covers the full spectrum of anxiety disorders. So this is anxiety disorder, panic disorder, phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD. It's a book written by Edmund Bourne called the anxiety and phobia workbook. And I will link it in the show notes because it was this book that I credit more than any psychologist, more than any medication that gave me back my life. It was this book that worked so many wonders for me. It's a very good book. It was right after Dan and I had our first conversation about it. He bought this book for me off of like Amazon and gave it to me. Yeah, I, and I still do that. Anyone who comes to me and says, I have an anxiety disorder, no more questions. Like, what is your mailing address? I'm going to send you a book. Because this book, it's not pop psych, it's genuine psychology, it's real help. If you will do nothing else and you have an anxiety disorder of any kind, I just rattled off the whole cluster of them. If you have any one of those, please read this book. If you have depression, if you're having suicidal thoughts, go onto Google, look for a crisis hotline. There's going to be one in your area. Please talk to someone. The worst thing you can do is to think that you have to struggle with this alone or to think that there is no other side to this. It doesn't get better. Look, it may never completely go away. It might. For some people, it does. Some people do get completely past these problems and move on with their life. Some people don't. It becomes a lifelong struggle. But the fact is that life can and does get better if you can simply find it in yourself to just do something, something small, Don't even be that ambitious about it. Just find something small you're willing to do to reach out for some kind of help. For me, the most significant aid in my dealing with my depression is that somebody else knows, right? It doesn't have to be a doctor. Just the fact that my wife is aware and she helps me deal with it is tremendously significant. Because if I had not shared with someone what I was going through... I don't think that I would be aware when, you know, there's a lot of times where I'm depressed and I'm going into a dark place and I'm not even thinking about it and I feel fine, but she'll notice those behaviors in me. She'll notice those changes and she'll start to poke and prod and get it out of me that I'm actually not feeling particularly well. But I would say that the chief reason that I have not hurt myself is because 
I have somebody to talk to about it and who has some semblance of understanding to help pull me out of that dark spot. Right. Yeah. So, so I also struggle with phobias and survivor's guilt, but haven't really brought those up because they're, they haven't impacted gaming once we get to that topic. Yeah. But as we're talking about like some of the coping things, I'm actually really lucky in one way. Something in my mind at some point built up work as a different environment. I think it started when I worked at Six Flags because for me, I am not a public person, but I go to Six Flags. I have to be on because I'm out in front of the crowd. So I got that mindset of when I put the uniform on, I'm a different person. So for me, when I go to work, this is why I'm a workaholic. And I know this is why I'm a workaholic. When I open the door at work, I'm, if my baggage is at a hundred percent, it's immediately down to 25% when I walk in that door. When I go to lunch and open the door to go out, it's all the way back up. Right. But something about myself, I have been able to compartmentalize that. So when I work, it doesn't impact my work as much as it would otherwise, because it's like I leave it at the door. It's still there. I still feel it. But it's not at 100. It's down to 25. It's funny you say that. I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, there's no place I think about killing myself more than in the parking lot at my job. But once I'm in the building and I'm at my desk and my computer's on and I'm doing my job, yeah, it it all kind of washes away. The dangerous areas for me, the reason I listen to podcasts is because I used to be a music lover. I would always listen to music in the car, music when I would you know, do anything. Music doesn't interact with my mind. It's a background. I need an audiobook or a podcast where I'm actually focusing to keep my mind from spiraling. Right. Because when I'm doing something that's automatic, like driving, riding a bike, working out at the gym, that's when my mind can wonder. And I need something to keep my mind interacted with because my wondering mind is my worst enemy. It it looks like this is going to be a two-parter because we still haven't gotten a part on gaming. But in closing, there is one other thing I want to talk about. And we're going to do it in closing because I believe I can only talk about this briefly simply because of the fact that this comes perhaps a bit dangerously close to dispensing medical advice. I cannot tell you how to do crisis intervention. Okay, that's not within my realm of qualifications. So I'm not going to attempt to. But if you are someone who knows someone who has a disorder, and this is true whether you have a disorder of your own or not. But if there's somebody in your life that has a disorder that you do not have, there are two or three things I want to recommend that I think you can do to be the biggest help you can be. Number one, listen. Whatever it is they have to tell you, you don't have to judge it. It doesn't have to make sense. It's not going to make sense. If it made sense, it wouldn't be a disorder. But listen to what they're telling you. And understand that even if their perception of reality is wrong, they're telling you the truth about what they are experiencing. Number two, do some reading. It's not that hard in the age of Google or Amazon or whatever to find people that are writing about what it is like to live with a condition or how to help somebody who has a condition. Do some research of your own on how to understand this and what that person might be going through. And Dan, that was something that helped me initially too. There is a forum out there that is, I want to say it's panic.org, maybe panic.com, but it's people that struggle with panic and anxiety disorders and people that are there to support sure. them. The whole purpose of that community is to talk about it. And I never joined and posted. I just read what people had to say. And you can find something similar for depression, for schizophrenia, for bipolar disorder, for, I mean, whatever it is that someone in your life is going through, you can do a little bit of light reading and some listening to figure this out. And that leads to the third thing that I would recommend, which is if it is within your ability to do in terms of time and financial means, you might want to contemplate talking to a professional. And don't ask about this person's case because that person, the doctor's not going to be allowed to tell you anyway. But just say, look, how would I, generally speaking, help de-escalate a panic attack? If a friend of mine who has depression calls me up in the middle of the night and says, I'm thinking about hurting myself, what is it I need to say? And you can find information like this once again. You can get it from doctors. 
There are a variety of crisis centers that offer free training to the public for de-escalating these kinds of situations, for intervening. If these are your friends or family members and you care about them, then take it upon yourself. I'm not saying you have to bend your life around them. I'm not suggesting you become codependent enablers. But what I am suggesting is just like if somebody's in a wheelchair, you make sure to park where they can get in and out. You don't put them on the other side of stairs. It wouldn't kill you to learn a little bit about what these people are going through or how you can be of help to them. Now, in the next episode, we're going to come back. And with this groundwork laid, we are going to talk specifically about how this ties into gaming and how gaming affects this. So I know this was kind of a heavy episode. It was a little bit unusual for us, but I feel it's an important episode. I hope you got something out of it. And if not, we'll just squirrel away because you never know what life's going to throw at you. Don't beat your kids. You literally change their brain chemistry. Don't hit your kids. (laughs) Yeah, you do. You will f***ing ruin them. Yes, you will. Before we go, though, I want to add on something to that first point that you made about sitting and listening to them. And this comes from if you're that person, because I have been that person who has sat and listened. And in addition to just straight up listening, like what you recommended, which, you know, is excellent advice for the person who is actually doing the listening. The most important thing I could actually add, and I, I say this from experience, you have to at all costs avoid that voice inside you that wants to try and help them with that situation at that time. There's literally going to be nothing that you can say that's going to change them at that moment because that's not what they want. They want to be listened to and just to have it be absorbed by the other person and just be there, not to try and change it, not to try and fix it, not to try and do any of those things. Don't, don't, just don't do it. Resist that urge and that temptation to do that because you will fail and then you will ultimately make the situation worse at a time when you could make it so much better by just doing that single thing of listening And even though you flat out will not understand it, you have to just listen and accept it for what it is that you're hearing. So for you guys at home, thank you for tuning in. Check the show notes. I don't know. We're going to have a whole lot of links, but at least put one to that anxiety and phobia workbook. And I hope you'll take some time to digest this. And next episode, we'll come back to talk about specifically how this affects gaming, both as people that have the conditions and also as gaming groups where you are not the person with the condition but have someone in your group who does have a condition and where you can help, where you cannot help, what's going to go right and wrong there. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week in great games, and we will catch you next time. See you. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2016. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.